0: All right, we are live from Occupy City Hall. This is our excuse me, sorry about that. This is like Jordan Flu Game 6 right now. i a little bit underneath the weather, however, we're gonna get it together. All right, yes, yeah, so all that, that did rhyme, that was on purpose. It was on accident but on purpose at the same time. All right, we're getting to a real, real cheesy place. I should really delete this. But I'm, off of principle, I won't delete it. I will let the world hear how cheesy I am at 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, all right, so we are reading The End of Policing by Alex Vitali. This is our Rockford Reading Podcast. Uh, where uh, we read a piece of literature and cross-reference how the information in the literature directly or indirectly connects to the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice in Winnebago County. Uh, I'm here today with Kay, fellow member of the May 30th Alliance. Uh, Good evening. uh, What we will do, uh, this is the second episode of this, what we will do is we will read Through the end of policing, we're on chapter one, the limits of police reform, and we will have conversations and dialogue about how the things uh, mentioned in here uh, directly and indirectly relate to Rockford, Illinois. Uh, Let's hop in. Let's begin. uh, All right. We're in the midst of page eight. Uh, The end of policing, chapter one, the limits of police reform. American police receive a great deal of training. Almost all officers attend an organized police academy, and many have prior college and or military experience. There is also ongoing training. Large departments have their own large training staff, while smaller departments rely on state and regional training centers. Many states have unified police officer standards and training post agencies that set minimum standards, develop training plans, and advise on best practices. While United States, excuse me, While police training standards are still more decentralized in the United States than in many countries that have national police forces and academies. The new post system has gone a long way in raising standards and creating greater uniformity of procedures. However, even after training officers often have inadequate knowledge of the laws they are tasked to enforce. Police regularly regularly disperse young people from street corners without a legal basis. Conduct searches without probable cause, and in some cases, take enforcement action based on inaccurate knowledge of the law. In Victoria, Texas, an officer assaulted an elderly man he had pulled over for not having a registration sticker on his license plate. The man tried to explain that the vehicle had a dealer's plate, which in Texas is exempt from the sticker requirement. When the officer refused to listen, the man attempted to summon his boss at the car dealership where the confrontation was occurring. Rather than working to resolve the mistake, the officer attempted to arrest the man and, in the process, injured him with the taser so badly that he was hospitalized. In the subsequent injury, the officer insisted that the man's passive resistance was a threat that had to be neutralized. Since the incident was recorded on the dashboard camera of the police cruiser, the officer was fired. I think uh, right there we should point out how uh, in Victoria, Texas... We have seen something that regularly has happened in Rockford, Illinois, uh, uh, and even to a much uh, more extreme extent where a police officer wrongfully... Uh, assaults uh, victimizes and traumatizes a member of the community uh, but what we have never seen here even when it has been caught on dash camera or caught on some type of video camera where there ha- or when there have been witnesses what we have never seen here is an officer be fired uh, and so I think it's important that when we're cross-referencing these issues that we realize that there is precedent set all around the country in different areas of officers being fired for violating the rights of the citizens and their Community, uh, so it is not too much to ask for that to be a step that we take in the process of getting to a complete uh, new uh, institution and create uh, create a uh, new uh, uh, consciousness of the community society. Uh, you have anything you want to uh, interject with in there? You want to keep on going and then jumping with some thoughts later? Yeah. I uh,
1: I think a lot of the uh, the issues at At large are the fact that their training is is relatively short in comparison to other fields and then when you look at the ability of them to have a firearm to be given tactical training some hand to hand combat training that for the sake of the laws that they're they're taking an oath to uphold. And then to not be versed in the laws as a primary requirement shows the uh, shows the intent of the the intent of the uh, the construct of the police force in America and policing to where a person can have a handgun, have a relatively short period of time to be trained, and still not know certain nuances or aspects of the law to where they're assuming their perception of the moment is adequate to handle the situation opposed to them being versed in the law. And I think, that's, I think that's one of the most detrimental aspects of why police act in the manner that they do. I think it's just, I don't think it's just even something inherent to Rockford, but it's definitely something that's that's, uh, that exists here and is alive and well in the the in regards to rpd and the sheriff's department there are many incidences where even myself as a witness where
0: they did i confronted them with the law and they didn't know the law
1: yes that's a regularity (laughs) that's a regularity
0: it is a regularity out here for uh, at demonstrations and protests uh, for a police officer to not only not know the law, but almost take some type of pride in their ign- ignorance of the law uh, in statements like, "Well, that's for court," or right. "You fought, well, they take that up with the judge," or, or things of that nature, uh, and so. Uh, I think that that is just something as we read through these things to keep in mind that these are things that are very real here happening in Rockford and in Winnebago County. Uh, So let's continue. The training police receive at the academy is often quite different from what they learn from training officers and peers. The emphasis is on strict discipline and rote learning of laws and rules and emphasizes proper appearance over substance. Cadets are given little in the way of substantial advice about how to make decisions in a complex environment, according to two veteran officers' memoirs. Even sympathetic portrayals, such as the reality television show The Academy, provide stark evidence of a militarized training environment run by drill sergeants who attempt to, quote, break down, end quote, recruits through punitive drilling and humiliating personal attacks. When officers start working, the first thing their peers often tell them is to forget everything they learned in the academy. In some ways, training is actually part of the problem. In recent decades, the emphasis has shifted heavily toward officer safety training. Seth Stoughton, a former police officer turned law professor, shows how officers are repeatedly exposed to scenarios in which seemingly innocuous interactions with the public, such as traffic stops, turn deadly. The endlessly repeated point is that any encounter can turn deadly in a split second if officers don't remain ready to use lethal force at any moment. When police come into every situation imagining it may be their last, they treat those they encounter with fear and hostility and attempt to control them rather than communicate with them and are much quicker to use force at the slightest provocation or even uncertainty. Take the case of John Crawford. An African-American man shot to death by an officer in a Walmart in Ohio. Crawford had picked up an air gun off a shelf and was carrying it around the store while shopping. Another shopper called 911 to report a man with a gun in the store. The store's video camera shows that one of the responding officers shot without warning while Crawford was talking on the phone. In Ohio, it is legal to carry a gun openly, but the officer had been trained to use deadly force upon seeing a gun. The officer involved was not charged, and Crawford's girlfriend was intimidated and threatened while being questioned after the incident. Similarly, in South Carolina, a state trooper drove up to a young man in his car at a gas station and asked him for his driver's license. He leaned into the car to comply, and the officer shot him without warning. See unexpected movement. Shoot. Part of this emphasis on the use of deadly force comes from the rise of independent training companies that specialize in in in-service training staffed by former police and military personnel. Some of these groups serve both military and police clients and emphasize military style approaches and the, quote, warrior mentality, end quote. The company, CQB, boasts of training thousands of local, state and federal police, as well as American and foreign military units such as the U.S. Marines, navy seals and danish canadian and peruvian peruvian special forces its emphasis is on quote battle proven tactics end quote trojan securities trains both military and police units and offers police training in a variety of weapons in numerous settings including a five-day quote police covert surveillance and intelligence operations end quote course the problem is especially acute when it comes to swat teams Initially created in the early 1970s to deal with the rare acts of extremist violence, barricaded suspects, or armed confrontations with police, these units now deal almost exclusively with serving drug warrants and even engage in regular patrol functions armed with automatic weapons and body armor. These units regularly violate people's constitutional rights, kill and maim innocent people, often as a result of being in the wrong location, and kill people's pets. These paramilitary units are increasingly being used to respond to protest activity. The militarized response to the Ferguson protests may have served to escalate the conflict there. It's probably no accident that the St. Louis County Police Chief's prior position had been as head of the SWAT team. These units undergo a huge amount of in-service training funded in part by seized alleged drug money. The federal government also began to fund training and equipment for SWAT teams in the 1970s as part of the last round of major national policing reforms, which were intended to improve police-community relations and reducing police brutality through enhanced training. These reforms instead instead poured billions into training programs that resulted in the rise of SWAT teams, drug enforcement, and militarized crowd control tactics uh I think that uh well, let me ask this Kay, what's some of your thoughts initially after uh hearing that and then I'll respond with some of my thoughts.
1: just listening to the timing of the SWAT teams or the tactical training of officers makes me think about the the foundational steps and the structuring of the ramp up in the war on drugs uh i've read uh personally read articles uh, you know little snippets on just the the training tactics or the people that they they bring to do the training some of them are paramilitary israeli paramilitary or some of them are you know ex-military from the u.s uh you know seasoned military veterans that are now training the regular officers, and it's it's it, it's ironic that we've come to a place now where the SWAT team is almost the norm. But I remember over 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, it was the narrative was pushed that you know the regular police it wasn't enough; they didn't have enough armor, they didn't have enough. Uh, they didn't have enough firepower. They didn't have enough guns. They didn't have enough bullets. They didn't have enough vehicles. Because when you, when you look at the progress of it, 25 to 30 years ago, officers were in cars. For the most part, you saw a car. Now, as an example, in, in, in Rockford, I believe I've seen maybe one or two cars that actually said Rockford on it. But the vast majority are SUVs. And then when you look at their body armor and just their demeanor, uh, warrior cop mentality. Because the, even the, even when it comes to the takedown, it's not even like diffusing a situation or attempting to calm someone that's nervous just based on your presence. Uh, some people just don't handle uh, the pressure of a moment being confronted by an officer. They don't handle it well, so they come off as... as uh, as someone that's uh, you know possibly not stable or they come off as someone who who uh, in the moment is irrational but yet they, they the, the simplicity of it is just based on their on their experience it, it may cause them to act a certain way but it, it was what's not justified is the the brutality that that uh, in many instances, follows, and the fact that America is normalizing uh, this behavior is troubling. Uh, America is normalizing the the b- brutality of officers as if that is the norm. That is not the norm. When you look at other nations, other European nations, police. Uh, Police brutality or the militarization of police is not the norm when you look at Sweden, Denmark, other nations. So what what we what we deem as normal is abnormal. Uh, in in the in the means to the uh, the militarized the level of militarized police in America, and uh, I think the danger the danger is in in continuing continuing to ramp up this style. It on a social level, people just become more accepted to it as as the norm and as the standard. But when you look at the the the, the flip side of that is the more extreme that the officers are trained, and the more extreme that they 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 go out into society. There's a there's a dis a disconnect because now there's just an outward air of of uh, of intensity, like you could feel it just in, in uh, the driving by or. Uh, driving behind you in a vehicle or the, their presence just standing it's, there's an intensity of that that, that that precedes them. but it's not it doesn't leave a social uh, a social feeling of calm or, or security. It, it, there's a very real response of fear that, that presents itself based on the very presence of an officer.
0: Let me ask you about these stories or not the stories, the events uh, that they pointed out uh, of incidents of police terrorism taking place. Uh, the incident with John Crawford, who was shot in Ohio in the Walmart and the incident of the state trooper who shot the young man at the gas station. And I will ask you before uh, hearing what your thoughts are about those and what some of your First emotions were uh, about hearing a of stories. I would say that the first things that I thought about for John Crawford was Logan Bell. Logan Bell was killed with an air so, uh, holding an airsoft gun in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, and so, uh, what were some of your thoughts?
1: Um, I re- I watched the video. I watched the video. Of, oh, I actually saw the the, the whole video, and I, I forced myself to watch even when he when he fell very graphic but uh i don't know the circumstances of how i was able to see the footage but i they it was just step by step you saw him pick it up and he's the innocence of the moment he picked it up and he was walking around with it he was he hadn't purchased it yet but he had had it in his head so the perception of another shopper Went to the immediate extreme. They they immediately called nine one one. They did not call their concern to the attention of Walmart managers or Walmart employees, and that's the context that you got from the from the nine one one call. When you hear the person talking to the dispatch, they went right from "this is what I think this is," and then they're speaking in a matter of fact tone. Uh, we, there's a there's a guy here. He's in here with a gun. They're speaking in a matter of fact terms of what they think they know. They didn't talk to any Walmart employees at all. And then to watch the officer immediately, it was, it was it was chilling, because the officer immediately immediately the only thought on his mind was neutralize the threat. He wasn't trying to listen to this man. You could see from his body language he was trying to uh i believe he was even trying to set the gun down or had set it down it was still killed so it's, it's it, what, what i'm all always struck by understanding the language now is that the power of the perception of an officer in that moment and that perception in many instances in every instance that we're we're discussing in Rockford, making it relevant, that every instance a person was gunned down, and the precedent of this uh, perception of the officer is what allowed the officer to walk, but yet you had unarmed people dying, based on the decisions of officers, based on assumptions. Now I know that the, uh, legally they're saying it's based on the perception of the officer. But the officer's presumption is what distingu- extinguishes the life. And th- that's my takeaway from that that story as well as the other one listed, that the perception of an officer
0: holds way too much weight. I think that was a very poignant point. Uh, let's move into diversity. Page 11 of The End of publication. There is no question that the racial difference between the mostly white police and the mostly African-American police in Ferguson, Missouri, contributed to the intensity of protest over the killing of Mike Brown. Reformers often call for recruiting more officers of color in the hopes that they will treat communities with greater dignity, respect and fairness. Unfortunately, there is little evidence to back up this hope. Even the most diverse forces have major problems with racial profiling and bias, and individual black and Latino officers appear to perform very much like their white counterparts. Nationally, the racial makeup of the police hues closely to national population figures. The U.S. population is, sev- the US population is 72% white. 75% of police nationally are white. Blacks make up 13% of the population, and 12% of police. Asians and Latinos are somewhat less well represented relative to their numbers, but not dramatically so. In the largest departments, only 56% of officers are white. The disparity seem greater in communities of color because of the deep segregation there. In these cases, there are invariably large numbers of white officers patrolling primarily non-white areas. This contrast stands out more than its converse because whites are rarely concerned about being policed by non-white officers and because white communities tend to have fewer negative interactions with the police. There is now a large body of evidence measuring whether the race of individual officers affects their use of force. Most studies show no effect. More distressingly, a few indicate that black officers are more likely to use force or make arrest, especially if black civilians. One new study suggests that small increases in diversity produce worse outcomes while large increases begin to show some improvements, but only a handful of departments met this criterion. In, in, the, in the end, the authors conclude, there's no evidence to suggest that increasing the proportion of officers that are black is going to offer a direct solution, end quote. Use of force is highly concentrated in a small group of officers who tend to be male, young, and working in high-crime areas. This high concentration of use of force may be exasperated by weak accountability mechanisms and a culture of machismo that rewards aggressive policing, formally and informally. These same cultural and institutional forces militate against differential behavior by non-white officers. Uh, And so... uh, I think that what I will point out at that point is that we have seen that here where uh, a black, po- black police officers have been involved with multiple of the false arrests that have taken place here. Black police officers have been involved with multiple of the assaults uh, by uh, 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 officers onto two civilians have taken place here. We have a, a black woman who is now the chief of police and she slammed a, a, a 20-year-old protester. Uh, she was uh, in charge when a black woman who was protesting, had her head slammed against the pole. Uh, and so uh, we do understand that putting a, a black face at the head of a white power structure does not change the motives or the intentions of the power structure. It only changed the image and the, the uh, uh the branding of that power structure uh... And it and is always also important to remember with all of these things that we are talking about institutional issues and the individual does not manipulate the system, the system manipulates the individual uh... And so a black officer entering into the system of policing is not going to manipulate the system of policing they will simply become manipulated by the system of policing uh... any thoughts or anything you want to add in there, that? Uh, even, even as you you said that I was, it made me think
1: about uh, Carla red, but it also made me think about other black officers that have said on numerous occasions why they personally joined the force and in my my from my perspective it always left me saying, well, okay, on a personal note, you joined. The force hoping to make a difference. But you realize as being part of the institution that your personal feelings and your personal intent for joining the force have no bearing on you operating as an officer. It just becomes your intention. It's like talking to someone that joins the army because they wanted a car Well, why'd you join the Army? Well, I had nothing else to do. How do you feel about it now? No comment. They don't really want to talk about it because what got them to sign up and join was an aspect of them romanticizing about what it meant to them, which in most cases I feel has no direct correlation to what it actually is. It 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 it's. Would you agree? It becomes emotional. It, it becomes a feeling, opposed to the facts of the matter. When you look at statistics, they'll tell you how they feel. Why well, join the force? Because this is how it made me feel. But then once they get in, and then you see the extreme. Well, if I get a name on the street as being tough on crime, maybe it'll make the crime go down. The crime going down is not indicative to you being a worse officer. And trying to instill fear in people is not going to affect the level of crime or crimes being committed. Right. Crime, <laughs> crime in society has everything to do with disenfranchisement and lack of opportunity. So for an officer, as you just read, black officers taking it upon themselves to be more brutal than their white counterparts, there is a something for them to say, well, if I'm known as this type of officer... And I came from a city that was like this. I came from a region. I'm from New York State. So when you talk about officers, you always read, there's always a story that I'll crop up about officers of color and how they treated the people in the very community that they were policing, which was more extreme because a lot of them, they were trying to build a reputation of operating on fear, not respect, fear in the hopes that that would somehow drive down a crime and that's not how it works the lack of opportunity and disenfranchisement causes people to weigh the options of getting caught and then serving time but it's there's a level of desperation that's undeniable that's that's compelling them to make the decisions that they're making not whether or not they are afraid of an officer that looks like them
0: no uh again those are all poignant points and so Uh, Again, we just want to be cross-referencing how these things connect to us. So let's continue. (laughs) At the department level, more diverse police forces fare no better in measures of community satisfaction, especially among non-white residents. These departments are also often just as likely to have systematic problems with excessive use of force as seen in federal interventions in Detroit, Miami, and Cleveland in recent years. Both New York and Philadelphia have highly diverse forces though not as diverse as their populations. Yet both have come under intense scrutiny for excessive use of force and discriminatory practices such as, quote, stop and frisk, end quote. This is in large part because departmental priorities are set by local political leaders who have driven the adoption of a wide variety of intensive, invasive and aggressive crime control policies that by their nature disproportionately target communities of color. These include broken windows policing which is emphasis on public disorder and the war on drugs, which is weighed almost exclusively in non-white neighborhoods. Having more black and brown police officers may sound like an appealing reform, but as long as larger systems of policing are left in place, there is no evidence that would give cause to expect a significant reduction in brutality or over-policing. Uh, and it is important to remember that uh, we are, again, we're facing an institutional Uh, Issue and so if tomorrow All the white police officers in Rockford Retired and was replaced with all black police Officers as long as the consciousness Of the community stayed the same and the Policies and uh uh, functionings of the uh, of these institutions remained the same the black police officers were over police the black communities district 1 district 2 district 3 will still be a, in communities that are right next to public housing they still will be treating black kids in uh, public schools different than they treat white kids because that's what would be mandated by the people who put them into those public schools uh, so that is something that is uh, we must remember I know that that's something that can be difficult sometimes but we are dealing with a, uh, a, a institution institutional uh, institutional evil here. Uh and I know that k had brought up with the world drugs and some of it the, the statement he was making earlier. Uh, and so uh I believe there's a chapter in here on the world drug specifically. Uh but we have the next uh paragraph here called procedural justice. Uh but before we get yeah, yeah I was gonna I say do, I did want to say this.
1: Being from New York State, what the the just to show you the relevance of, of in this book, The End of yeah, Policing, yeah, yeah. where they talked about the stop and frisk. That that was huge through the 80s because that was the gateway intentionally used for resisting arrest and uh, search, illegal search and seizure. Because the stop and frisk was you'd look suspicious. Literally, you weren't you they they weren't telling people you look like a suspect uh a uh, person of interest you your your outfit matches his they didn't even have to go there Stopper Frisk was literally what are you doing why are you standing here what what are you doing you look you look suspicious you look suspicious uh empty your pockets this is this is literally gestapo yeah. empty your pockets what's in your what's in your bag into your pocket why you look nervous you look nervous you got something to hide the same way i'm saying this is what they were doing you you got something to hide you look a little nervous you high what's the matter why you why are you fidgety they're agit they were deliberately agitating the person and then making their actions of the person become the causation for arrest because they're getting agitated, they're getting nervous, or they start getting loud. Don't, hey, 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 buddy! Don't don't yell at me! Don't yell at me, buddy! Empty your pockets, up against the wall, up against the wall, right now. And they would just build and build and build. And this was common practice all the way up until recently. This is yeah, I when got out recently the- where they get up against the wall right now, and they would line up four, five, six guys legs spread out leaning up against the wall all of you guys get up against the wall and it was it was just a mental thing even uh, and, I, and I'll say this briefly and I'll give you the mic no, no, go ahead. there wasn't even an off, and I thought this was a fake story I'm telling you I, I I, couldn't believe that this was real there was an officer that would make men kiss him What? he would make men kiss him on the mouth what? and it was to do it was to demean them and humiliate them. And when I watched the video, just clips, we say before you leave, give me a kiss. He would, he would make them kiss him on the mouth. They would do it. They had no choice. And he was doing it psychologically to demean them and demoralize them. Wow. And it was just, it's just another level of psychology. The stop and frisk was so so psychologically damaging to these uh young men because a lot of it was they were young men they were like between 16 and 25 so it was it was just it was just it a sexual assault. it was just a terrorizing, a a, a, terrorizing. Of, of people at, at, at that age just the in general practice of the stop and search stop, stop and frisk because you, you you're going about your daily life so once they saw your routine, They knew when to be in a certain spot at a certain time to get the results that they wanted because of the, the people that would congregate there or that would end up at that spot, whether it was waiting for a bus or near a grocery store. They knew the time schedules of certain groups, and they would play on that. So imagine the psychology of you're going about your everyday life. Now, the officer knows your face. He's, he's, he's uh, either attempted to arrest you or he's arrested you, but now he's terrorizing you. Hey, you, I remember you from yesterday. The point was you didn't arrest me yesterday. I wasn't doing anything. I remember you from yesterday. And it is just that, it's that psychological terrorism over and over and over again.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, let's get to the last portion of our first chapter, and then we will be on... no, it's not the last portion. Mm. Procedural justice. Procedural justice deals with excuse me, procedural justice deals with how the law is enforced as opposed as opposed to substantive justice, which involves the actual outcomes of the functioning of the system. Excuse me, you all. Sorry about that. Procedural justice deals with how the law is enforced as opposed to substantive justice, which involves the actual outcome of the functioning of the system. President Obama's task force on 21st century policing report focuses on procedural reforms such as training and encourages officers to work harder to explain why they are stopping, questioning or arresting people. Departments are advised to create consistent use of force policies and mechanisms for civil oversight and transparency. Oh, damn. Uh, my fault. You guys said that wrong. The report implies that more training, diversity, and communication will lead to enhanced police, co- police community relations, more effective crime control, and greater policy legitimacy. Similar goals were set in the late 1960s. The Kassim-Botts Report of 1967 argued that the roots of crime lie in poverty and racial exclusion, but also argued that a central part of the solution was the development of a more robust and procedurally fair criminal justice system that would uphold the rights of all people to be free of crime. Uh, What what are some of your thoughts after hearing that? I I was hoping that 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 chapter was going to relate to the economics,
1: which it did. Because in Rockford, uh, to make this relatable to a very real situation here, historically this city has not invested economically in the education of the black populace. It is de- it, this is deliberate. It's not like it, it it somehow did it as an oversight. It knows fundamentally how we keep crime at an, at 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 higher levels to justify. Consistent budgets, where the, where you can track that the budgets are not going down. There isn't a there isn't a downtrend on the police budgets in Rockford. There isn't, which you you would you would say in a, in a in a perfect world, that would be indicative of the success of an administration. Crime going down, which in turn would mean the budget would be going down for the police force, which in turn would actually, the ultimate extent, would be laying off officers because crime would be lower. Rockford is not that way. It's sustainable or it increases, but it never drops to a a level where they start talking about mass layoffs or allocating the officers to other areas because there isn't... Because the crime rate has dropped so drastically. They know there's a direct correlation between education, ed- opportunities, which which it spoke about, the the disenfranchisement, as well as the economics in a community. So Rockford is deliberately withholding both intentionally. Rockford is with intentionally affecting the wealth gap of its black community by affecting the education gap of a uh, substandard education for the minorities, but also economic opportunities are, are, are really not, uh, not with keeping with uh, a, uh, a total social uh, ref, uh, representation. The opportunities for blacks in Rockford are not the same. The the uh, access to the exact same Life experiences are not the same just given the economics of, of uh, how Rockford has prioritized uh, education and opportunities. Rockford spends more money on the Justice Center and the police force than it does on the social uplifting of its populace. And uh, and that's how we get to this situation where it's talking about, uh, you know, the the economics as well as the uh, disenfranchisement. So even here, uh, policing or even more policing is not the answer to make crime drop. There is a direct correlation between income and education for anyone that would doubt this or say otherwise. When I go to, to keep this again relevant to Rockford, Illinois, when I go to Perryville, there's more, uh, there's more uh, of a financial aspect involved in the, the uh, infrastructure of that area. There's a different education base and there's more opportunities in general. Because to believe otherwise, the only conclusion to believe otherwise, the only conclusion that you could truly walk away with is that black people are genetically predisposed to crime and violence, or people of color are genetically predisposed to crime and violence, which is obviously is not true. But if one would say that, I don't see the correlation between uh, economics. Or opportunity, if one would say, I don't see the 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 correlation of economics, or opportunity, or education, to directly impact the quality of uh, of, of a uh, society, then they're obviously looking, uh, not looking directly at at the infor- information presented to them. All of those things are relatable; they're all relatable. If you take the poorest of any black community. I'll just I'll use this as an example. If I take Chicago, and I take the worst section of Chicago based on crime, I'm sure it's most likely an African American community. But I will never assume that black people are predisposed to crime, and that people want that area to stay that way, and they 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 they, they are comfortable with seeing. Drive-bys or murders or drug dealers out of the street as a as a norm through through uh, through uh, just the means to survive it, 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 through desperation. I would never say that that's a norm, or, the, or that it should be celebrated, or, or it should be understood that that is the norm. It's it's not. It, it can become someone's normal, but it in it, it itself is not innately normal. Now, if you take that area, literally the poorest of the poor, you did this in Chicago. You took that area, and then you invested directly into the hands of the people through grants to start businesses. Or to uh, uh, have the means to further their education, or have the means to increase the 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 overall property value of the homes. Within a ten and twenty year period, that whole section will be revitalized, and the crime rate would drop. So again, there is no. There is no, no innate uh, uh, correlation between blacks and crime or, or non-whites and crime. That it's just, it, it's, that's just how it is. No, that's how, it's, that's how it becomes, but yet it's not an organic manifestation. That is how it becomes based on the lack of financial investment in the people and in their community. So yes, there is that correlation between uh, the financials, uh, finances or economic uh, empowerment and uh, education to bring about the uh, a direct result or impact of, of the crime in that in that area. So what I see when I look at statistically a, a, a city in America that has. An unusually high level of crime. I don't. I don't look at that crime as the cause of the social ills. I look at the lack of investment fundamentally by that city in the demographic where the crime is really uh, 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 at a heightened level. I look at on a political level and on a socio-economic level, they are being disenfranchised on a multi-layered approach. But the, the crime itself is not the cause and the response is not more the same to increase even more police and more police and more police. Because it's gotten to the point now where sometimes I feel just when I look, I look down the street or wherever I'm at in that moment, I almost feel as if certain aspects of the city are literally a prison without walls. Because the police become the parole officers monitoring the situation. The people uh, move in fear. They walk in fear. They exist in fear or intimidation. But yet the, 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 I don't want to say the fear of it. But the impact of it is, at least in prison, you await your release when you start developing society openly as if it's like a prison yard there is no hope of being released because this is their everyday life and there it is the danger because at least if someone is truly is incarcerated and they're serving just a year sentence they're counting it down okay, I only have 60 days left. I only have 59 days left. I only have 58 days left. But when you're out here in society and you're in, in on a social level, your community, your block, your your area, and you are treated as if you are on the yard and, and you have to be addressed a certain way and approached a certain way and perceived a certain way, as if you're you're uh, assumed guilty in, until proven innocent. Then you understand the psychology of a person not having the me the not 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 having the means of time for any type of transition out of that situation, because if a person really is in jail, they await being released. But when your community and your area is treated this way, no different than the, no different than the, the jail, what, what, what aspirations do you have of counting down when there's, when you're already out in society, but society Starts to mimic the look of the policing of a jail. I think it's. I think it's definitely not a culture shock. It's a social shock. It's a shock to the very fabric of society when you start superimposing the jail, the penal system, to everyday life.